thank you everybody for being here and, um, and welcome all, all of you. So um, this is our first Big Tent USA um, in-person event and I'm one of the founding members. It was founded in 2020 um, because we realized that there was a need to help democracy in order for it to endure, especially when one of the other political parties is trying its hardest to destroy it. Good people must come together. We need to stand up, we need to fight, we need to shout out loud um, and stand up for our American values. And what started with a handful of women in, in the Greenwich um, area is now a world, uh, nationwide organization with over 3,500 people. <laughs> and our main objective is to promote activism and education in order to protect our principles, make sure that we reach people that otherwise would not be aware of what is going on. So we're leaving time at the end of this conversation to, for questions, so please fill out the cards that are around here. Um, someone will be by to pick them up. Um, so on to the two special people that are up here. We're very thrilled to have the opportunity to welcome a native Connecticutite, is that how you say it? <laughs> One of ours, Attorney General, Attorney General William Tong. Um, he was a litigator, I'm going to read this part because I don't know all of this, an elected member of the Connecticut House of Representatives and be became Attorney General in 2019. And he has so kindly offered to moderate the discussion with Michael Waldman, who is President and CEO of the Brennan Center ooh, um, for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Michael is the author of a new book, Supermajority, How the Supreme Court Divided America and Continues to, to Do So, where he explores the tumultuous 2021-2022 U.S. Supreme Court term. He draws deeply on history to examine other times the court veered from the popular will, provoking controversy and backlash. And he analyzes the most important new rulings and their implications for the, for the law and for American society. And in it, Waldman asks, what can we do when the Supreme Court challenges the country. So please join me in welcoming Attorney, Connecticut Attorney General William Tong and the Brennan Center for Justice President and CEO Michael Walden. Thank you so much. Thank you, Belinda, for hosting us here this evening. What an incredible home. Um, it's gorgeous and a great party space, so hopefully this won't be the last party that Belinda throws for us. Uh, thank you, Susan, and the leadership of, of Big Ten, and Mary Himes, um, where's Mary? So, Mary, I'm supposed to be in Essex tonight. Um, I had a conflict, but Mary Himes said, you had to be in Greenwich tonight. <laughs> so, uh, it's, uh, it's great to be with all of you, and a, a special thrill to be with Michael Waldman. Um, I've heard him speak a number of times. Uh, I'm a great admirer. I, I first heard him speak about his book, The Second Amendment. I was just asking what the title was. It was the creatively titled Sec The Second Amendment. Um, but uh, for m many of us seeking to understand the origins of the Second Amendment, particularly when the Supreme Court was so active um, in two prior cases, Heller and McDonald, and now Bruin, which we're going to talk about tonight, um, that book is really an insider's guide, but also like Second Amendment for dummies. It's, <laughs> it's an easy read, um, it's very accessible, um, and really helps you understand the historical framework. 
So I encourage you to read that book. But in the same way, Supermajority is also very accessible. Um, and we're, we're really privileged to have one of the um, premier commentators um, and, and thought leaders on the Supreme Court and its jurisprudence, um, and also a great civil rights leader in this country. So please join me in welcoming Michael Waldman. So um, I want to start um, with the court, and, and we're going to spend uh, you know the next half hour or so having a conversation about supermajority and about you know your thoughts about the Supreme Court and where it is and where we go from here. Um, and, and, and so as a jumping off point, let's talk about the Supreme Court as an institution. I think most of us um, growing up in America, we are taught to believe that the Supreme Court is this paragon or, or pillar of, um, uh, of nonpartisan, um, you know, thoughtful, sober, and, and fair legal analysis of the pressing issues of our day, right? And there's something about um, the Supreme Court that's um, above all of it. But in your book, you say the Supreme Court has always been an intensely political institution. And maybe that isn't so true, that, that it's somehow above all of us and in another dimension. And I wonder if you can explain why you say that it's an intensely political institution. Well, we want it to be a court. We want it to defend the Constitution. We want it to reflect our values. The reality is, over the years, it has been intensely political. If I could take uh, an author's prerogative first to thank you, Attorney yeah, General Tong. Um, it, it's a great privilege to be with you, to hear from you. you. You all know that you are all very fortunate to have somebody in this role, which is increasingly important in defending rights and protecting public safety, uh, as our country goes through a lot of topsy-turvy and crazy times, we, I live in New York next door, we watch with admiration and we really appreciate it. I want to thank, if I might also, first in absentia, Leslie Butani, who's a board leader of the Brennan Center, who introduced us to Big Tent, this great organization, uh, to Kitty and to Susan uh, for bringing us together, and especially to Belinda for hosting us in this beautiful, wonderful home. And being together in person to fight for what we all believe in is one of the greatest joys and privileges, and I'm so happy to be with all of you. Um, you know, the Supreme Court is a singular institution. Uh, in other countries, uh, there is nothing like this where every June you sit around and wait for these decisions to come down to tell us what kind of country we're going to live in. Other countries do not have nine unelected people with lifetime appointments making these kinds of decisions on such significant matters. The part of the Constitution that deals with the Supreme Court and the federal courts at all is only one-tenth the length of the part dealing with Congress and the President, the, the democratically accountable branches. It has this power because we give it this power, because we want to believe or pretend to believe that it's above politics. Uh, most of the time in the country's history, in fact, the Supreme Court has reflected the political consensus of the time. It sort of hugs the middle. Um, when it's extreme, when it's partisan, when it's unduly activist, it creates a massive backlash. Fierce, political, actually often realigning. And that's happened a few times. And I think what we're seeing right now with this supermajority of extreme conservatives dominating this court 
and making such dramatic and I think unwise change, I think we're seeing at the very least the beginnings of the same kind of backlash. So part of the lesson of the history is we've been in moments like this before. Fighting about the Supreme Court is not only not Ill, it's not illegitimate, it's actually the heart of American politics over time. So I want to get back to that and, and um, not just the backlash, but, but the discussion about reform. But before we jump into that, let's talk a little bit more about the institution. Because in your book, um, you dig into the personality some. And, and if, it's, if it's a political institution, it's really important to understand um, the people who inhabit it, the nine unelected supermajority members. And, um, you know, it seems that uh, the, the personalities, particularly Thomas and increasingly his wife, Ginny, um, Alito you call inexplicably angry, um, and then you quote Kavanaugh, talk about angry, from his confirmation hearings, and, and, and then you have Roberts on the other side, right, who uh, increasingly he's the chief justice, but you say it's, it's not his court. So um, help us understand how we should think about the court as it moves forward through the lens of these personalities and, and what that tells us about where the court is. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, we think about them, they're government officials. They wear robes, but they're not wizards, and they're <laughs> not religious figures, even though they say they're interpreting the runes, you know, of the past. They're government officials. Um, at this moment, there's always been a lot of politics. At this moment, I would argue, the court has been captured by a faction of a faction. Mm -hmm. A number of these folks are on there as part of a very well-oiled, very well-organized, well and it turns out very well-funded political machine. Um, there's Leonard not Leo and the Federalist Society and, and that now multi-billion dollar machine. We used to look at the Federalist Society. So the Federalist Society started here in Connecticut. It started as a student club up the road at Yale Law School for law students, conservative law students who felt sort of marooned in the liberal world of law schools. It has now become something we've never had in this country before. You know, there's a lot of kind of conspiracy theories in America, the, the, the Masons or QAnon. This is in plain sight. Mm -hmm. um, and we watch the Federalist Society and how they pick the judges, fight to get them on the court, then create the groups that file the briefs, and on and on and on, not just at the Supreme Court level, but all throughout the system. Now, I, I, running the Brennan Center as I do, I used to look at them and say, you know, they're really effective. They don't actually seem to have that much money. Well, <laughs> it turns out uh, one person gave Leonard Leo, the leader of the Federalist Society, secretly $1.6 billion a few years ago, which, uh, which he uses for ads. He ran tens of millions of dollars of ads, praising the senators who would not give Merrick Garland the time of day when President Obama nominated him, creating the groups that file the briefs and so on. So it's not like anything we've ever had before. And you're right, you know, we, we sort of give these Supreme Courts the shorthand name of whoever the Chief Justice is, the Warren Court, the, the Liberal Court of the 1960s, for example. And of course, Roberts, we talk about the Roberts Court. He is one of the six, but increasingly it's not his court. It's actually more dominated by the ideas of Clarence Thomas and by Donald Trump and the three justices he appointed. Um, you can see Roberts, who cares about the institution and is at least very aware that it's public approval has collapsed to the lowest level ever recorded. But he's struggling to keep up in a way with the parade. And, and I think 
from, from the most optimistic perspective, many of us court watchers, participants, are hoping that Roberts somehow matures, transforms into the next Kennedy. But I don't think that's going to happen. And, and um, I think there's a temptation to lump him in with the liberals. And as he showed in Dobbs, that's not the case. Well, and, and even if he is, he's only one vote. You yeah. know, this is, the chief justice doesn't have much power other than casting a vote along with the rest of them. And one of the reasons the book is called The Supermajority is it turns out six to three is very different from five to four because you no longer have, think about Sandra Day O'Connor or Justice Kennedy who were conservative but they were the swing vote and they actually were quite sensible much of the time. That's not an option so much anymore. And you know, the, 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 one of the things in terms of the court being political that I vaguely understood but for all of you thinking as you do about political fights and, and the country, it's kind of mind-blowing in some ways. This didn't all start with Mitch McConnell. This didn't all start last week. The Democrats, one part, this is not a partisan point, this is an empirical point. One party, the Democrats, have won the popular vote in seven of the last eight presidential elections. And the other party have appointed six of the nine lifetime justices. Democrats and Republicans have split control of the White House kind of more or less evenly for the last half century. And Republican appointed justices have had the majority since 1970. Uh, it's just, it, it, some of it is bad luck, some of it is better political organizing. This is a trivia question for you. What year was the last year a Democratic president appointed a Chief Justice of the United States? 1946. So there's something, we talk about the minority, the ways our constitution, which we love and revere, also has some kind of old fashioned things that can be out of sync with the direction of the country. It turns out this is one of them. I am gonna to jump to the reform question, if that's okay, before, we, we, before we dig into the cases, because, because we're right on it. So um, you know, famously, when Roosevelt launched his plan um, to quote unquote, pack the court to get the New Deal through, um, portions of the New Deal, the, justice re the justices reacted. And their switch on their positions in time is what saved them from court packing, basically, that they adjusted their views and attitudes about the New Deal. It doesn't seem like the conservative block in the Supreme Court now, the Thomas block, let's call it, is reacting to what's happening outside of the Supreme Court. You know, in the second full year of the supermajority, this book talks about the term that ended, especially in June of 2022, with the Dobbs case and also the Bruin Second Amendment case and the regulatory case, West Virginia versus EPA. Last term, there were two positive sort of surprises mm -hmm. on voting issues. And some people have said, oh, well, is this suggesting that this, um, pushback is starting to have an impact. I agree that for most of these folks, they don't care. They, they pound their chests and are very proud of not caring about the public. Now, when in my view, in my sad, long life experience, the more someone announces they don't care how mad people are, that's not really true. <laughs> you know, they're doff protesting too much. But they view themselves, they're not really there to help Trump. They're not really there. They are there for a long-term, serious, ideological project, I believe, of moving the court forward.
far to the right and yeah. therefore the country far to the right, and they're taking something of a long view. But, I, I, and I'm an elected Democratic statewide official, and so clearly um, I have a point of view, and, and I'm a partisan, um, um, in the best sense of the word. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, like many people, um, I'm very concerned about proposals for reform, and, and think that we should tread very carefully. Mm -hmm. um, there, um, there's an argument that part of the reason why we're here is because of what Democrats did to get um, U.S. Court of Appeals judges confirmed in invoking the so-called nuclear option to bypass a filibuster. Um, and, and that, uh, as a result of that, uh, Republicans had um, at least a moral argument um, for the blockade of Merrick Garland. Um, and, and they invoked the nuclear option to get Brett Kavanaugh confirmed um, with 50 votes um, and a tie, and a tie break. So generally, and in, you know, we could talk about this for hours, but reform, more members, less members, lifetime, not lifetime, what's your general sense of where this is headed and where it ought to head? So I think you're being very wise in thinking both that this is something to take really seriously and that there are real reasons to tread cautiously. Mm -hmm. um, I'll tell you what, what I think are the most achievable and meaningful reforms. Uh, first of all, uh, as, as many of us now know because of all the controversies involving, among other things, Justices Thomas and Alito and their friends taking them on their jaunts up to Alaska and everywhere else, the US Supreme Court is the only court in the country without a binding ethics code. Yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. Nobody is so wise that they should be the judge in their own case. Um, Congress has the power to pass an ethics law. Uh, Justice Alito said it didn't, but that's nonsense. And Justice it, Kagan. It's absurd. Had, it's not just it's nonsense. It's, it's in absurd. the actual yeah. Constitution. Yeah. You know, they believe in textualism. It's like yeah. I, I can show you the text, you know. But Justice Kagan actually felt it necessary to come out and say, no, that's not true. Congress could do it, but so could the court. So could Chief Justice Roberts. The other day, Kavanaugh said, we're working on it. So at least perhaps there's going to be something there. The other thing that I'm for, that we're for, is term limits. Um, an 18-year term for Supreme Court justices. Again, the idea is that nobody should have too much public power for too long. Um, it's, if you want to think about it, it's, a, it's a, a concept that George Washington taught us when he limited himself to two terms. Um, every state Supreme Court, including Connecticut, has either an age limit or a, ter or a term limit. Um, so do the constitutional courts in other countries. And it's interesting. I don't think people necessarily realize this. It's really popular with Republicans and Democrats. Mm. Um, we've actually done polling on this, but even others as well. I was a, um, I was a member of the, President Biden appointed a commission on the Supreme Court, the Presidential Commission on the Supreme Court. And you'll know, and I think folks know, these kind of government commissions, they don't always do very much. You know, They're kind of designed to mean? kind of make sure nothing happens. And this is really true. We were instructed at the outset not to reach conclusions. And we didn't. You know, a, gov a government agency that works, you know, as intended. But it was really interesting. We heard from dozens of public witnesses, from left and right, Democrat and Republican. And they had all different kinds of views on, should we expand the court? Should 
we not expand the court, ethics reform, not ethics reform. Over and over again, they said, oh, but you know, I'm for term limits, of course. There's a, there's, a, there's a national consensus on this. It can be done by a constitutional amendment. We think it could be done as well by a statute um, uh, in which the justices become senior justices after 18 years. I think it's an idea whose time has come. I have no illusions that it's gonna be all kumbaya and everyone will just be for this, but I think it's gonna happen. But the point you make about FDR, you know, we're, we have not been for court expansion. I think that there, that is, uh, we all need to be aware of the deep and often invisible reservoir of reverence for the court yes. that is out there. Even FDR found out he had just won the biggest electoral victory ever. I think the Democrats had 70% of the Senate and they were about to strike down Social Security and it cracked up his coalition. Yeah. Now it did lead the court to back down but it was politically catastrophic, and you, it, it, I, I, we are all very conscious in looking at what's going on even on the streets of Tel Aviv, where people really, really care about the independence of the courts, and they should. And so those of us who wanna push for changes, we kinda have to really not delude ourselves about what's easy and what's not easy. And I, I can't resist this, but, but we talked about Alito's attitude, though, and, and you know, I think it goes both ways. The court has to have respect for the other branches too and its role in, in the constitutional structure in the federal system. And for those of you who don't know, um, uh, Justice Alito asserted that Congress has no power to regulate the Supreme Court, which is utter nonsense because as Michael said, um, Article Three is pretty short uh, about the Supreme Court. It says there shall be a Supreme Court and other inferior courts as uh, Congress may sh shall prescribe. So. Congress inherently has that power, and under the Constitution, Article One, Congress is in charge, right? And has used that power over and over again, right. both on the size of, of the court, on the jurisdiction of the court, on pre ethics codes for judges before. It was, it was one of the more silly things that uh, he said, but you, as you said, I did describe him as inexplicably angry. This guy's had a very nice life. Why is he so angry? <laughs> so seriously, uh, do you have, a, do you have a, a guess as to why he's so angry? It, it's, it's hard to understand. I do, in the book, I go into the kind of backstory of a lot yeah. of these folks. He had this nice upbringing, but this is, he was, uh, his father, when he applied for a job at the Reagan Justice Department, he said, the reason I wanna be here and the reason I wanna be a lawyer is I'm so mad about the decisions of the Supreme Court, especially one person, one vote. I was like, really? That's what you're so mad about? He said his father was the chief legislative counsel of the New Jersey legislature when the one person, one vote rulings came out, which were really important and said that basically you had to have equally sized districts. And he described coming down late at night and seeing his father struggling to redraw the maps. And this made him mad and made him a right winger. As opposed, you know, mo most other people would say, oh, I learned a lesson from dear old dad about the value of hard work or something. He, he made this a life's mission to destroy voting rights as a consequence. So you never know, you know, we all have our stories, but he has, he has his. Inexplicably angry. Inexplicably yeah. angry. So let's, um, uh, let's turn to the three cases that, that you feature in your book. Um, Bruin, Dobbs, West Virginia, they were handed down in that order. Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody knows about Dobbs. That's the decision that uh, reversed 50 years of precedent and fundamental human rights um, in uh, eliminating um, 
at least a constitutional basis for the right to have an abortion and reproductive freedom. Um, Bruin, of course, set up a whole new framework that seems to have been created out of whole cloth for considering the power of states through their police powers to enact common sense gun laws, which the Supreme Court, Justice Scalia and Justice Alito in prior opinions acknowledged we have the power to do. Mm -hmm. And then the third case, which um, is extraordinarily important though, uh, is, is West Virginia. And so I wonder, Michael, if you could just sort of introduce us to West Virginia, because I think not everybody knows what happened in that case. Thank you, and the, the case was the West Virginia versus EPA, and you're right, it didn't get the headlines, understandably, of these hot-button social issues, but it was the beginning of a very significant long-term assault on the ability of government to, and government regulatory agencies to protect the environment, in that case it was climate change, public safety, and public health. Um, and that is continuing in this term and going forward. So West Virginia versus EPA, as so many of these cases are, the facts of it are a tangle and they're less important than the doctrine. But the basic idea is we mentioned, and the Attorney General mentioned, the fight over court packing in the 1930s. And one of the consequences of that is that the Supreme Court stepped back, retreated, from what it had been doing for decades, which was the justices earlier, the Alitos of that era, said that their job at a time of industrialization and urbanization and growing inequality, their job was to stop government from doing anything about it, from protecting women, from protecting workers' rights. And they backed down in 1937 and said, you know what, if a government regulation is reasonable, it's not our job to get in the way of the legislature. And, and that is how we built a modern country. Right. And the modern system we all rely on. A very Scalia that. approach, by the way, a defer very, to the and, legislature. And Scalia actually was strong on this. Yeah. In 1930, and it was 1937. There were people, libertarians, conservative law professors, who thought this was a grave tragedy. They called it the Constitution in Exile. And their mission is to bring back that Constitution in Exile, to get the courts to once again say no, it's our job to say the Constitution stops government from doing things like regulating to protect against climate change. Yeah. John Roberts, for all his moderation, before he was appointed to the court, the New York Times had an article saying there are some people who might be on the court who believe this, and John, this guy, John Roberts, you never heard of? He's one of them. Yeah. And so what West Virginia versus EPA said for the very first time was that they, call it, they announced what they call the major questions doctrine. And what they said was, in that case, even if the text of the law, the statute passed by Congress, which was the Clean Air Act, actually gives the EPA, in that instance, the power to do this regulation about power plants and climate change, if it's a, quote, major question, why they couldn't possibly have meant that the EPA could do that. So what does that mean? It was the first time, as Elena Kagan said, that this phrase had ever been used in the Supreme Court case. What it means is that some Federalist Society picked judge decides if it's a major question or not. If it's a big enough topic, then they can't rule on it. And I'll give you an example of why that, and they're using that to strike down COVID regulations, all other kinds of things. And I'll give an example from this week of why that's dangerous. AI. 
you may have heard of it. <laughs> we are all wrestling at the Brennan Center with what it means for democracy, yeah. what it means in terms of disinformation. You imagine all the things. Everybody's freaked out about it. And there's no government agency in existence with the, with the expertise to keep up with it. But I'll tell you who doesn't have the expertise, Congress. So, and they know that. So what they will need to do and Democrats and Republicans both agree on this, is they need to create some capacity, some expertise in the executive branch to follow up and keep up with this. This doctrine would stop that, and you're seeing it over and over again. The other case that they just took for this term, it's one of the two most important cases, I think, this term, deals with something called the Chevron Doctrine, yes. which you know about, yes. which is that they, are, they defer to the, yeah. the expertise of the agency if it's an ambiguous statute. They've been trying to get this one for years, and now they finally took a case. And the book, as, as you mentioned, talks about the kind of the, the, the backstories of the justices. This one was a little delicious. The Chevron case, which S Justice Scalia was a backer of, came from the 1980s at a time when, you may remember, it was the first flush of the Reagan era. And Reagan had put all these people in charge of these agencies who were stacking them with polluters and cutting their staff and cutting back. And the most controversial person was the head of the EPA, the second highest ranking woman in the Reagan administration, Ann Gorsuch, Gorsuch's mother. And she was so controversial, she was held in contempt by Congress and she was pushed out. And in her memoir, this is, she has her teenage son, Neil, saying, Mom, you told me not to be a quitter. You know, why are you being a quitter? It's stock character style. And anyway, it's the same crusade. It's just he's in his three-piece suit, but it's an effort to rein in the modern ability to protect us. And it's going to be going on over and over. It's going to get less attention. It's going to affect Connecticut and your authority and regulatory yeah. power and everybody else's in ways that we will only begin to understand. So I think we're going to take some questions in a minute. Um, but, and this is my failure as a moderator, we haven't touched uh, Bruin and Dobbs, and I do want to do that, um, and we can have, continue that conversation in the questions. But as to West Virginia, you know, this major questions doctrine, where'd that come from? You know, and, and I thought these were originalists that mind what James Madison thought, or what Alexander Hamilton thought, and Thomas Jefferson, and this, doctrine appears out of nowhere and seems hardly originalist at all. You know, originalism is a flag of convenience. You know, they, they are originalists because it leads to conservative outcomes in their view, not the other way around. Um, but the, but the, one of the things that was noteworthy as a general matter, not that particular case, but the other cases, Dobbs and Bruin especially, was this was also the first time that the Supreme Court said, we are originalists and that's the only appropriate way to make these rulings. And you know, originalism, as you know, is the idea that the only legitimate way to read the Constitution is to ask what it meant at the time of ratification. And even if you can get the history right, and a lot of the history is just made up, yeah. that's tr a plainly absurd way to run a country. It literally means that the social views of property-owning white men from the 1700s have to govern us today. Of course, a time when women could not vote, when black people were enslaved, and on and on and on. And, you know, in other countries, they don't say, oh, in Great Britain, they don't say, oh, you know, this is an interesting proposal for legislation. The key question we need to ask is, 
what did King George III think about that? Because that's how we're going to govern ourselves. But it's literally how it's being done. You see it in cases all over the country, especially on the gun issue and the Second Amendment issue, where this idea that we must be governed by history and tradition, which is interpreted in the most narrow way of, did they have this exact law back then? It's, it's a, to me, it is, uh, it's something liberals, progressives need to stand up and, and push back on. Yeah, and what's horrifying is how convenient it is. I've, I've heard a story that I think is well documented that Justice Scalia was one asked, what is the originalist um, justification for Brown versus Board of Education? You know, would the founders have supported the use of the 14th Amendment right to stop desegregation? And he kind of said, eh, it doesn't always work, um, <laughs> but it, it works more than it doesn't work. Right, and, and there's sort of some inherent hypocrisy there. Well, and, and he, uh, he wrote the Heller decision, yes. as you know, which was the, f the first time the Supreme Court said that the, the Second Amendment protects an individual right to gun ownership for self-protection was just 2008. It was not long ago. Um, but it also said you could have strong public safety, strong gun laws. And he was, uh, Justice Scalia was asked, what's the difference between you and Justice Thomas? And Scalia said, well, I am an originalist, but I am not a nut. <laughs> he, wrote he wrote Heller. Thomas wrote Bruin. And it's a very different, a very so, different case. So Bruin is couched in originalism, too, in claim that um, Justice Thomas says you, you can only have a state law um, regulating gun ownership or gun use um, if there's a historical analog. So please, what the hell does that mean? And you cannot, in effect, consider current public safety needs while looking at these laws. And now, I, you know, the law that it struck down right. was New York's gun law from 1911. To me, that's kind of history. But what, what he really says is it has to be from the colonial era. And, if, and the way this has played out in the country is almost like a parody. New York State had to quickly write new gun, a new gun law. Uh, to restore some gun laws in New York. An upstate federal judge said, oh, history and tradition. Two examples from the colonial era, that's a mere trend. <laughs> For it to be a tradition, you need three examples. And I can find no tradition of laws banning guns at sleepaway summer camps, which you know they didn't have. Uh, therefore, it's unconstitutional. Let alone, by the way, underground trains which would not be invented for another 100 years. And if it sounds like a parody, there was a case that is, is really offends me, offends the conscience in Texas, uh, where the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, the very conservative federal Court of Appeals, upheld, said this, you cannot take away a gun from somebody with an adjudicated record of domestic violence, history and tradition. Rahimi. Back then, Rahimi, back then, hey, you know, that was a feature, not a bug, right? I mean, that, that was, and it sounds both horrifying and, and almost funny. As you know, the Supreme Court actually took this case. Yes. This may be an opportunity where they realized that the implications of what they did went too far. I'm interested in whether you think that they, uh, that they actually may pull back a bit. Uh, not the Fifth Circuit, whether the Supreme Court does... Um, I would say that all the normal forces would say yes, except they did what they did in Bruin. Right. You know, knowing that we have mass shootings, right? Knowing that 
um, we have assault weapons and bump stocks and, and ghost guns and things we didn't have, not just 100 years ago, but 20 years ago. And it's, it's very hard to take heart when you saw what happened in Bruin and in Dobbs. And so let's just go to Dobbs quickly. I'm sorry that, um, but these are such deep issues. Um, it's hard to, to do them justice, but um, we're locked now uh, and, and the states were in every single one of these cases um, um, asserting the rights of states and uh, to protect people here at home in Connecticut, New York and elsewhere. Um, but in, in Dobbs, we're now locked in this battle over Mifepristone. Mm -hmm. um, and so one of the things that grew out of the Dobbs decision um, was that allegedly the Supreme Court kicked the question of abortion to the states, right? It was, it was a states' rights issue. And they claimed at the time that they would never try to pass a nationwide ban on abortion. And then they went into federal court in Texas and uh, extremists tried to ban the use of mifepristone, which is one half of the medication you use to get a medication abortion, which is one half of the abortions in this country, used millions of times by American women over the last 20 years safely. That's now gone up to the Fifth Circuit. We, Democratic Attorneys General, have our own competing case in federal court in Washington, mm -hmm. where we have a court order that says mifepristone is safe, legal, and should be accessible and preserve the status quo, at least in our states, including Connecticut, which is why you can still use mifepristone here in Connecticut. But I wonder what you think now, this is a mess, right? This is a mess. This and did not solve the confusion around this issue. Right, <laughs> That's right. That's for sure. And, and I wonder if you think this will get, you mentioned it in your book, I wonder if you think it'll get taken up by the Supreme Court in some form. I would not be surprised if they took the case because this is so extreme and if they think the political blowback against Dobbs is intense. If one extreme judge in one courtroom in Amarillo, Texas is able to ban the use of mefepristone nationwide on the bogus notion that somehow there was a problem with the FDA's approval of it you know, two decades ago, this drug that has proven very safe over many years, I think that that would be politically um, very dramatic pushback. It just shows some of the ways these are issues you know, we have a federalist system which has a lot of strengths. We have a constitution that's more than two centuries old. Most of the time it works well or it's kind of got quaint quirks. This is an example where the politicization of this justice system is so severe mm -hmm. and extreme that it can really lead to terrible outcomes. In Texas, but only in Texas, you can basically pick which judge hears your case. And this Judge Matthew Kaczmarek in this one courthouse in Amarillo, Texas, the group that brought that case was formed to bring the case. And they knew he would rule the way he did. Interestingly, as you know, the Supreme Court has never ruled whether what's called a nationwide uh, injunction by one judge is constitutional or not, right. is allowed or not. Both, all sides use it a bit. We, you know, when the, the rulings that stopped some of the Trump administration's egregious immigration practices were also single judge um, rulings. But this one is pretty dramatic, and I think the political earthquake would be, would be felt everywhere. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn to the questions, but let me just say, even if you're not a lawyer, um, I, I recommend that you read Judge Kaczmarek's decision <laughs> in the district court uh, if you want your blood to boil, particularly, <laughs> particularly if you're a woman, particularly if you're a woman. Um, what he has to say uh, 
in this era of humanity is outrageous. And we've read a lot of cases, the two of us. It, it doesn't read like a case. It's a, it's a polemic. It's a battle cry. It's years and years of angst and frustration boiling over in what passes as legal analysis. Um, speaking of Dobbs, the, the first question, which is a really important question, big question, um, after Dobbs, after the fall of Roe, can, can we ever trust the concept of settled law again? That's a wonderful question. Yeah. I, I talk to law professors who try to teach this stuff and they throw their hands up because precedent, stare decisis, is the essence of, what, of how to understand what the law is. Um, and what the Dobbs case said is, oh, this was egregiously wrong and it was wrong from the very beginning, even though it's been upheld many, many times by the Supreme Court, and in the Casey case, in a big way, by Sandra Day O'Connor and the other justices uh, in 1992. So it's very hard to see uh, how precedent is taken seriously. I, I have two kids who took the bar exam in May, and they got, both of them, one of the saddest emails I ever saw from the bar prep company saying, please ignore any Supreme Court rulings from the last six months because they've upended everything we taught you in the rest of the course. It, it just pretend they didn't happen. And don't worry, we won't question you on this. But it's, you know, what you saw, look, there's always a lot of change. There have been times we want the Supreme Court to act. But what you saw in 2022 and to a significant degree this past June also was in those three days, decades of social change crammed into those three yeah. days. So it's hard to see where precedent it, lands it, after and that. And that can't be characterized as anything but activist, right? Um, and fundamentally reshaping not just the law, but social norms and the way we approach these issues. Um, again, disclaimer, as a Democrat, um, many Democrats, um, trace the origins to some of the problems that we're seeing today, um, not just in Dobbs and Bruin um, and in West Virginia, but in, in elections cases back to um, 2000, Bush v. Gore, and, and how we saw the Supreme Court address that issue. So fast forward um, to 2020, uh, 18 of my Republican colleagues ran to the Supreme Court seeking to get the Supreme Court to overturn the results of the presidential election. And the Supreme Court, thankfully, um, did not indulge them. Um, I think there's a concern that that was then, and 2024 is a whole new ball game. Um, as we look forward to um, election interference, election integrity, voter protection, um, and, and what could be an even more chaotic season in 2024, do you think the Supreme Court as an institution understands that it sort of has to hold it all together or are we looking at a Bush v. Gore sort of situation? It's a great question. Um, so one key fact that you're exactly right about is that in the end, in 2020, the Supreme Court did not bail out Donald Trump, gave the back of their hand to his theories of a stolen election, and were one of the 63 courts that rejected Trump's false claims of a stolen election. In that instance, and in that very big instance, they really stood their ground and did the right thing. 
Um, and it was important because, I mean, it was important because Trump kept saying things like, we have to confirm Amy Coney Barrett right away because this election is going to go to the Supreme Court and they're going to give it to me and she needs to be there to vote on it. He said that out loud many mm -hmm. times. They, their project was not to help Donald Trump. It was to move the country in a different direction. And so um, they stood their ground and they did the right thing. It was also significant because that came not just after Bush v. Gore, but after many years in which, for all of John Roberts's institutionalism and differences with the other conservatives, where he had led the court in a very aggressive campaign of voting and campaign finance and other democracy decisions that were just as activist in a bad way as any other cases. Um, we're all familiar, of course, with Citizens United in 2010. Anybody who's seen Barbie will know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, the alternate universe version. Um, and the 2013 key case of Shelby County, which gutted the Voting Rights Act, the most important effective civil rights voting law. And there were other cases since then. So it was a pleasant, it was a good thing that they stood their ground, but it came in the, in the wake of many uh, bad decisions. Now I will say this, um, in June of last year, just days after my book was published, but I'm not really taking credit for this, um, there was both a good Voting Rights Act case where they did not strike down the remaining shards of the Voting Rights Act, and there was a case that's particularly relevant to what may be the next attempts to steal the 2024 election. It was a case called Moore versus Harper. Mm -hmm. It was this idea that somehow the Constitution had given the state legislatures the power to set election rules with no checks and balances from state courts, state constitutions, governors, voters, and that nobody had ever noticed it until now. It was, it was nutty, it was made up, but they took the case. And we at the Brennan Center coordinated the friend of the court briefs with others to make the case that this was not based in history, would have chaotic outcomes. And happily, uh, they rejected that too. Six to three, they said this is not in the Constitution, that the normal uh, checks and balances and judicial review hold. So that means that in Connecticut and in other states, the proper role of state law, state courts, state prosecutors still is what is going to matter in 24. And that could also turn out to be very important. So related to that, this is um, a little bit of a curveball because it's not in the book. Uh, but it's, mm -hmm. it's something that everybody's talking about. And when I saw this question, I that I couldn't ask, uh, not ask it. Um, there's been a lot of discussion about uh, Professor Tribe and others opining that uh, the 14th Amendment disqualifies uh, Donald Trump from appearing on state ballots, right? That's an important distinction. Um, I will, in the spirit of full disclosure, note that our Secretary of the State, Stephanie Thomas, and your Attorney General are getting pressure from people to um, uh, make a decision right, and to weigh in on this issue um, and without, without addressing what we're going to do, um, if anything. I wonder if you have any thoughts about this debate and, and where it might land. So you're right that it is a, it is a big, important yeah. new argument that's being made, and it's noteworthy that in addition to Professor Tribe, who is a, a, a well-known liberal, this is being um, advanced by a number of conservative scholars and by uh, former Judge Michael Ludig, who is a, an esteemed conservative who, who was the one who told Mike Pence he could not actually overthrow the election. That's where you may know him from. Um, but it's a number of uh, 
conservative scholars and legal activists looking at the Constitution, and it's a section of the 14th Amendment, section three, that says that if you swore an oath to uphold the Constitution uh, you, and you engage in an insurrection or rebellion, you then are not eligible to be elected, say, to president or Congress. I think one can make certainly a strong case that that sounds like Donald Trump to me. That is only the beginning of the analysis, however. Um, the real question, and if you read the very long and dense law review article that kind of kicked this off, is, well, who gets to decide that? And they argue that it's, quote, self-executing, meaning, well, you know, if it's the case, then, then basically any county official, any secretary of state, anybody can decide, oh, no, he doesn't get to be on the ballot. I think one can understand the, the complications there because um, that would not only apply to Donald Trump, but other people who, are, who, who we might not think should be thrown off the ballot. Ultimately, I think it winds up at the U.S. Supreme Court. I think it's, un, you know, I don't want to, Yogi Berra uh, used to say, don't make predictions, especially about the future. Um, I, I wouldn't be betting on them blocking Donald Trump from the ballot. But when we talk to election officials who we work with around the country, they don't say necessarily, oh, no, this isn't really valid. They say, please don't give us this hot potato. Yeah. Um, we are having enough trouble now with the threats and threats of violence and the need we have to be trusted by people to not have people thinking we're going to just keep someone off the ballot on our own whim. The question is, should, if, does Congress need to pass a law or something saying, oh, this was an insurrection? So I think there's a lot of complexity to it, but, but it is absolutely in the Constitution. And, and as a general matter, the law, state and federal, um, the body of the law generally favors access to a ballot, right, and, and permitting people to stand for election and to leave it to the people, which is the, the, the sort of background, the framework that, that this decision will be made in. And one would be reluctant to have a system where some Sheriff Joe Arpaio yeah. in Arizona could say, well, you know, Kamala Harris, she backed Black Lives Matter. And that yeah. was, I think that was an insurrection, so I'm going to do my thing. So, look, I think we all need to be very aware of the magnitude, the severity, the seriousness of what Trump did. Um, the, 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 the idea of a president of the United States or even the leader of a party attempting to overthrow the Constitution and our system needs to be strong enough to stand up to it. But it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of nuances and complexity in this. How are we on time? Okay. Uh, why, don't we, why don't we have one more? Um, and, and I'll turn to the states for a minute. Yes. Um, and um, you just launched uh, a new blog about states and state, uh, state Supreme Court, state courts, and jurisprudence. And um, the question that prompted um, this question is about the fight over the Wisconsin Supreme Court and, and the attempt by um, conservatives, Republicans, to remove or impeach um, the Chief Justice of, of, the, of Wisconsin State Supreme Court. Why should we care what happens in Wisconsin to their Supreme Court and why do states matter? Well, we should care about Wisconsin specifically because it's one of the most egregious recent examples of an anti-democratic impulse and a retrenchment. That is a state, as you know, that has been part of the massive backlash nationwide to the Dobbs case 
And we've seen not just at the polling place in the midterm elections, but in ballot measure over and over again, people standing up for reproductive rights. And the way it played out in Wisconsin is that's an evenly divided state. You wouldn't know it from the state legislature because it's so gerrymandered, but the electorate is 50-50. But there was a judicial election and it went from 50-50 to the liberal candidate winning by 11 points. And everybody knew what they were voting on. And the response of the legislature is to say, oh, we're going to impeach her before she puts her robe on. Because we don't want her to rule, interestingly, not on reproductive rights, but on redistricting. Because that's, you know, yeah. that's really heavy duty stuff, right, for them. Um, and uh, it, it, I can't think of something as nakedly anti-democratic as that. Uh, and we're all following what's happening because uh, among other things, evidently, in Wisconsin, if you impeach somebody, you don't have to convict them. You, they just are frozen and can't rule anymore. So uh, we're all watching this with great alarm, and this kind of thing is happening in many states all over the country. But I think the, the more broadly significant thing, and you alluded to it, and this is, of course, what you were so central to, in our federalist system, states matter enormously. Yeah. The state courts matter enormously. State constitutions matter enormously, and state officials matter enormously. Uh, it is a, you and your colleagues, and these documents, these systems, are a bulwark for freedom, for, for equality, and it's important to everybody that, uh, that they be respected and lifted up. People don't realize, as an example, every state but one has a stronger protection for voting rights in their state constitution than the U.S. Constitution does. It's just that state courts have generally sort of said, oh, well, whatever the Supreme Court says, that's what we're going to do, too. So we at the Brennan Center um, have launched this week a state court report uh, website. It's a rich content, full web website, looking at cases from all over the country, um, not just on voting issues that we work on, but on reproductive rights, environmental, and everything else, so people in Oregon and people in Oklahoma can find out what each other are doing. It's called State Court Report. And I will mention also that, uh, and, and it's our advisory board of Republican and Democratic former chief justices of their state courts. This is not something with a partisan or ideological bent. This is actually one of the great unsung aspects of genius in our system. And so I think it's a generational task for you and all of all of your colleagues uh, to have the chance to really step up and protect things if things go haywire uh, in Washington, which all too often they are. Because at the end of the day, we're still a federation of 50 sovereign states, and, and we need to remember that. Um, we could do this for hours and hours, if not days and days. Thank you so much to Michael Waldman. Thank you, Attorney General. Well, um, this is kind of fun to see everyone in person since we've done over a hundred different um, Zooms. I want to thank, of course, the Attorney General and, of course, Michael Waldman and the entire Brennan Center for coming out to Greenwich. Thank you. Um, and um, it does give me great hope that we can persevere and that we can uh, protect our country. Um, to have this many people in Greenwich, Connecticut come today of course, I can't thank you enough and particularly want to make a big shout out to Kitty Douglas, who really did do this event. Thank you. And, and to my amazing group of women founders of Big Tent USA, it was a, a little thing that 
Belinda and I kind of thought about. We sat at a table with several other women, and we did this. And it was Sue Mandel who thought of Big Tent, the name, and it kind of went on from there. And so we are so grateful for everyone being here, and we hope to continue to uh, expand and get um, our message out to the rest of the country. Belinda, of course, kindly um, with major gratitude to her and Carlos for opening their home to us. Thank you.